Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. You're a body in the world. From the moment you're born, from that very first gasp of air, you're taking in sensations, trying to get a handle on things and the relationships between them. There's a lot of things to get a handle on, too many. So your brain needs to simplify. It makes boxes for objects, maps them onto grids to track their motion. Through this process, the physical world enters your mind. It makes your mind. And that's where things start to get really interesting. My guest today is cognitive psychologist Barbara Tversky. Her new book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought, upends everything most of us think we know about thinking. Tversky's first law of cognition is that there are no benefits without costs. We simplify the physical world, reduce it to lines and boxes. We build abstract thought, everything from Shakespeare to string theory to how to design a pair of sneakers, on top of that same flawed foundation. And that explains all of our superpowers and all of our blind spots. Welcome to Think Again, Barbara. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. First of all, did I get anything wrong in that introduction hey. about your... Ideas. It was great. <laughs> okay, Thank okay, you. Okay. A little daunting. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. My intention is not to daunt. And certainly, I don't think I'm in any position to daunt with respect to the volume of research and the complexity of ideas that you're talking about in this book. I mean, I have to say that you explain it all very clearly for a layperson like myself, but it's... Uh, it's a lot to take in. Thank you. <laughs> and I also noticed, and this is just one of the many ways your book has kind of gotten into my head. As I was talking just now, I was noticing all of the gestures that I was making with my hands and wondering to myself, what exactly am I, am I doing there? It's helping you think. <laughs> so, and it's helping you explain. We respond to gestures. We make them spontaneously. Long ago, one of my colleagues had people sit on their hands and try to explain how to get from A to B, and they can't find words. But I think gestures go beyond finding words. They really help us to represent our thought. One of the studies that we did was put people in a, alone in a room. They're not talking to anybody. They're reading complicated descriptions of space. So right. the bank is north of the post office. And they have to remember that for a test that's later, and it's not an easy test. So while they're doing that, they're using their hands spontaneously to make lines for the streets and points for the places. And they're not looking at their hands while they're doing it, so it's somehow in those actions. And it's abstraction in the sense that you're not getting all the details, but the rudiments of this environment. And when they do that, they remember better. When I think about gestures, if I hadn't read your book and seen kind of the breakdown of all the types of gestures that we make, you know, the first thing that would pop to my mind are the kind of, I forget what the technical name is, but the symbolic gestures, you know, like thumbs up or whatever. The They're called icons. Yeah, so yeah, icons, right. icons. You know, and then I could think, okay, directionality, pointing, you know, these sorts of things. But gesture gets much more strange and abstract than that, doesn't it? I don't know if it's strange because it really is representing the thought. So we did a similar experiment explaining how a car brake works. Mm. And again, people tend to lift their, um, the brake fluid goes from above to below. So people are tracking the brake fluid with their hands and then tracking the action of the brake fluid on the car shoes by making their hands go out. Sure. So, so it, I mean, they're mechanically imitating the, the, the physical motion, but... From a description. They don't see a picture. Right. So it's hard to imagine. And we think the gestures translate the words into thought. The words are hard. But it, it seems like everything that we do, everything that we think is also built upon this substrate of, of motion and movement. I mean, so that in that case, the gestures are translating the words into thought, but that actually the 
foundations of our mind, you're saying in your book, are, are really based on motion, right. movement, space. Right. And that isn't always evident in gestures. I think public speakers are perhaps trained not to make too many gestures. In certain society, it's considered impolite or okay. rude. So people suppress them just the way they suppress emotions that you're not supposed to express. It's wanting to come out, but you learn to override it. So if you think about action in space, we act with our feet and we act with our hands. And our feet take us from place to place. So it forms a kind of network, a place is a dot, and the path between places is a relation. Right. And if you think about thought, it's the same. We go from one thought to another and there's a relationship between the thoughts. So Abstractly, they're quite similar. So that's feet. Right. And then if we think about hands, think about the way we talk about ideas. We raise them, we tear them apart, we throw them out. Those are all actions on objects. Right. But we use them to describe our actions on thoughts, and then they get put in our gestures. Yeah, Those there's there's, a, there's an extraordinary section in your book where you go through almost countless number of space and movement words that we use to talk and think about more abstract ideas, relationships, etc. It's incredible. And of course, other people have pointed that out, George Lakoff notably. But I don't know that they've organized it in this way and, and, and shown how close it is to our own actions on our body. And, of course, there are other ways we talk about thought, too, um, sure. not just um, our actions on body. But the, those do seem to be the rudiments and the foundation. The moment in your book where I kind of, like, put the book down and just said, wow, uh, uh, whoa, you know, I grabbed my wife's attention and had to tell her was something that might not obviously jump to everyone's mind as the most, you know, focal point of the book. But the, the fact that there are structures in the brain that, you know, there are locations in the brain in which we deal with discrete objects, discrete things in the world, and another structure that is sort of grid-like in which we deal with movement and relationships. And that that really then is the foundation on which, like from which mind seems to emerge in terms of how we think more abstractly. I'm glad that it, that caught your attention. It's research in the last couple of years. And part of that research, at least on space, won the Nobel Prize for John O'Keefe and the Mosiers. So John O'Keefe and, and Lynn Nadell and others had long ago discovered that when a rat explores an environment, there are individual cells in hippocampus right. that fire when the rat is in particular places. But they weren't arranged topographically. Hmm. So it, they proposed that it was a cognitive map, but it really couldn't be. It wasn't sufficient. So what the Mosiers working in O'Keefe's lab found that right next door, one synapse away, right. are these grid cells that seem to map the place cells topographically. Right. So that we, they're two-dimensional, not three and that's a bit of a mystery because bats have them and how they right, navigate. Right, right, right. Yeah, we so live that, in three-dimensional space, yeah. Right, and so it's really, and even <laughs> monkeys um, go up and down trees, so there are 3D. We don't do a lot of 3D, but they do, so it's, it's still a mystery how the third dimension is there. But recent work, a lot of it on humans, because now... You can do some single cell recording in humans mm -hmm. when they're about to undergo surgery for epilepsy because okay. you don't want to wipe out it. You want to wipe out the area that causes the epilepsy, but not areas that are crucial to cognition. So there's some exploratory work. So it's been recently found that those place cells in the hippocampus respond to ideas, events, people, and what they seem to do is gather information from all over the cortex and amalgamate it in a single cell. So for rats, smell gets in there, not just place. Mm. And for people, it might be visual, verbal, 
all, all kinds of information get encoded. In a single cell, like it's like a, a, a neuron or a yes, part of a neuron? In a one, single neuron. That one neuron encodes all that inf information. Right. right. Okay. And I'm three synapses away from that research, so okay. <laughs> I'm reporting what I read, and I did consult a number of experts on that field, and, and they helped me. But we have the place cells coding events and people and ideas, and they get mapped on the grid cells. Mm -hmm. So the, the conceptual relations, the temporal relations, the social relations, all get mapped on those grid cells. And what's also interesting about the grid cells is they're like a whiteboard. You can erase right, them. Right. And then remap. And that even happens to the rats. So if you suddenly enlarge their environment, they don't use the previous one. They remap. They reminded me in a way of, you know, year, years ago, I took a master's degree at your home school teacher's college in developmental psych. And uh, kind of the way that they were talking about working memory at that well, time, you know, that it's just, it's just sort of a, yeah, like a whiteboard, as it were, on which you gather things and then arrange them. In a sense. Nice, nice. But the grid cells do it spatially. So yeah. I picked up this analogy that the play cells are like checkers and the grid cells are like a checkerboard. Mm. And you put the checkers on the checkerboard in whatever array you want. Mm. So again, that's research done in the last two, three years. So right. very exciting. So moving then from, you know, place cells and from, you know, sort of objects and, and places into the more abstract realms. I, I think about what we learned way back when about um, schema, cognitive schema, mm -hmm. right? And how the idea was that we tend to put ideas and people and sort of all the qualities that we know about a thing or a place or an idea in the world into kind of one bucket, but mm -hmm. and that that bucket grows as we get more experience, more information, whatever. And that that bucket is always necessarily incomplete because we have only so much information. I mean, first of all, you can tell me if that research is now totally out, outdated. And secondly, I'd just like to talk about some of the flaws and some of the things that slip through the cracks when our mind is trying to organize things into into buckets. Okay. Big so, question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so schema is the same word as schematic. Right. So our and some people like to say schemata instead of schemas. There, there's some it's are, are is data plural or uh, or singular, okay, right. right? And and people who know Latin or Greek get sensitive. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So it, it, that we have to abstract and can't keep track of everything is not only necessary but useful. So think about navigating New York as we both do on a daily basis. We don't have to remember where everything is. We need a general layout right. so that if we come from a different direction, we're not completely upended. So we don't want to remember everything. Similarly with people, they change hairstyles, they grow old, they um, <laughs> have new glasses and so forth. We need to have a schema for the a person so that we can recognize them under other circumstances and not keep track of all of that detail. Similarly sort of for, like it's sort of like a working theory in a way or a hypothesis you, you, you could say. You, uh, sure. And it's <laughs> and like a hypothesis it's always changing with new information. It's not that those are stored in files, the, the, the way we had old-fashioned files, it's more like those Google Docs that we keep changing, okay. right? right? You could never go back to the same one because it keeps changing. So yes, they'll, they'll keep changing, getting updated. Probably things like chairs and tables don't have to get updated unless we're at some modern furniture show and there's a weird example. But yes, we keep those general schema. They help us recognize things. But because they summarize, we can be misled. This is the first law. And we can make mistakes. What I try to draw attention to as a baby is figuring all this out and learning all this. Mm. And it takes time, both to figure out what I mean, you watch babies, their reaction times are slow. 
and they're doing a lot more figuring than we have to. So if every time you walk down the street, you had to figure out, is that a bus or a car or a person? You um, would be dead very yeah, quickly. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't move. So, You'd be run over by a bus, first of all. Like, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> so that we really do need the facts, fast access to all of this information. Is, is that a friend? Is that someone we know? Don't smile, especially if you're a woman. Don't smile at a man that you don't know because it's a come on. And so you... you Unless you're in Minnesota or somewhere where it's uh, okay. I don't know. (laughs) Not in New York anyway, right? (laughs) Right. Right. And those cultural things get in there as well. Mm. So, right. And I mean, I'm told that nobody in Russia smiles. And in fact, that was my experience, grim-faced everywhere. And you go to Japan and people won't be negative. Israel too, they don't smile much. You were you lived there for a while. Oh, right? right. I didn't find that. Okay, I was I was in Jerusalem for six months. I just remember Ah, interesting. I remember a, a fairly Maybe I'm remembering the just sort of the aggressiveness of the, the you know, there's a there's definitely a, like a tension in the cultural expression of that could be and and it's something (laughs) i didn't notice but it might also be prevalence of religious Mm. where those strictures are are right i mean men don't even look at women Mm. so or they're not supposed to they (laughs) right right (laughs) (laughs) officially they do right (laughs) right When you talk again about schema or schemata, there are dedicated places in the brain that recognize certain things. They don't recognize individuals, but they recognize that something's a face or that Mm -hmm. that something is a certain object or even category of objects. So the brain, the brain is amazing in terms of what kind of information it's storing, how it's doing automatically. Even that picture I gave of the place cells in the hippocampus and the grid cells isn't the whole story. You brought in working memory. There's just lots more that's happening. I oversimplified, sure, and I sure. hope it's okay. But um, Yeah, otherwise but, we would get very confused, I suppose. But, yeah. I mean, so much more happening both that you all know about and that isn't yet known, right? I oh mean, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yes. And and when you say you all <laughs> there's a lot I don't I can't keep up with the research. Very interesting and kind of crucial here is is the fact that these systems that we use to navigate the world, these hypotheses, these kind of like quick assemblages and you know theories and testing that we use to try to get around and survive and make good decisions and so on, they're flawed. Right. right. And they are, you know, we know from some of the research that has been done by, among other people, your late husband, Amos Tversky, and his partner, Daniel Kahneman, people have heard of cognitive biases, cognitive blind spots. I mean, it's entered sort of the popular culture at this point. But in, in your book, it's very interesting the way that you anchor some of the, like, errors that the brain tends to make in our understanding of space and movement that, you know, like the way we understand dimensions, the way we understand our bodies in space, that when that maps on to abstract thought, it imports some of the some of the blind spots in that in that reasoning. In that sense, there is consonance between their work and mine. And of course, I was a very happy observer of that work as it unfolded. Um, a very excited observer. It was great fun and fascinating, and there wasn't anything that Amos didn't run by me more than once, and often Mm -hmm. Danny, because he was a frequent visitor in our home. I mean, the view even goes back farther to perceptual illusions, which are rampant, and the view really is that there's a reason that either... The brain doesn't have instruments to compute exact distance, exact direction in the case of the sorts of biases that I discussed, but it also doesn't have exact instruments for computing probability. Right, right, right. So right, that, right. It, and that underlies a lot of the the heuristics and errors and biases that the Kahneman-Tversky team found. 
So it's partly thinking about what the brain can do and can't do, what the brain is primed to do, and that's act in the world and interact in the world. So then you start thinking differently about things. So the, the sorts of biases that we found in perception were or in spatial thinking were perceptual organizing principles. So we tend to think of big bodies as more aligned vertically or horizontally than they are. So we think of South America as below North America. Right. And then we make errors like thinking that Rio is actually west of Boston when it turns out to be far east. And that's because we're mapping them onto the cardinal directions, right? right. Or, or an that's overall your frame of reference. Okay. I mean, it's an overall frame of reference, and it simplifies. We think of roads as more perpendicular and parallel. It simplifies. It's using perceptual organizing principles that we use for understanding the world we're viewing, gotcha. where we discern things into objects and remember objects relative to each other, left of, right of, above, below, in front, back. Right. And, and we also remember objects relative to a frame of reference, say the bike is in front of the building. So the building becomes right. the frame of reference to the bike. So those are perceptual organizing principles that go back to the cave people and pro other primates. Do you, do you, I'm sorry, do you think in some cases that use, the way we use the thing also might influence that? Like a road is from, for getting from here to there. So right. therefore, maybe we, we straighten the road out. Exactly. Yeah. Because it, all we have to remember is it's the path. And it's reflected in the way we draw sketch maps, and we've collected lots of those. And what's important in the sketch map is that network of places and right. turns, and the distance and, and direction isn't. And then you wonder, why do they work? They've been refined. You find them back in, in 15,000 years ago, the same kinds of simplifications all over the world in, in artifacts, maps that are old. So you wonder, why do they work? Because they have right. been refined in, in a kind of actual user testing. I make one, you use it. If it's not working, you question. And I think it's because we use it in a context. Mm -hmm. And the context disambiguates. So if you come to a crossroads and you think it's a right turn, and it turns out to be at 80 degrees instead of right. 90, you're not going to make your own pathway. You're going to... Right, you're going to use it. So uh, there are pragmatics of how these things are used, right. and that's true in any communication. When we use language, there's pragmatics. We we speak differently to children. We speak differently to experts because we know their understanding is different. One interesting thing is there are differences I find in the way that people use language generally versus specifically so like i'll i'll often be using language as a kind of sketch map to uh. to explain something to my wife for example or tell her a story of something that happened and she wants a much more detailed, much more kind of uh, linear description of the thing. Like I'm trying to give the gestalt. I'm doing right, a verbal sketch right, map, as it were. Right. And and it's not actually succeeding because her her brain and the way she understands, you know, is just different from mine. Uh, sure, but I don't know with so much brain is, is you have the schema down and she's trying to get that schema from you and you're not giving her enough support. Right, and, right, 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 right. And then she'll ask. And I think that happens rampantly in directions. I'll, I'll ask someone for directions. This happened to me in London not long ago. I wanted to go somewhere, and I knew it was two turns away, but I didn't know exactly what it was. I asked a shopkeeper, and she kept going, you, you go straight on, you go straight on, you go straight on. And it was because you're always facing forward. <laughs> so, it, And then what I do in many of those cases is watch their hands. Mm. because it'll be expressed more easily in their hands. Saying those things in words is often really hard. Finding the right words, the words are blunt and don't really capture the ideas. So again, in, in that case, the context didn't differentiate. And, and I think some of the issue for you probably was finding the words. 
that sure. you needed to express so that your wife would understand. But conversation developed in in these small situations yeah. where people could correct and could go back and say, wait, I didn't get you. Well, and as you say, it's, that's a very interesting thing in the book, the way that the, the way that the physical gestures can sometimes be at odds with or adding right. information to what is spoken. Right. And that for children, they, they seem to help with learning. Somehow the children are getting all of that information at once, whereas I think we adults can maybe more than children get overly focused on one thing, the words, and miss the gestures, potentially. Well, I think we get the gestures almost peripherally. I mean, I'm watching you with lots of gestures. <laughs> they help me understand. I was my French is very rusty and and when I'm when I when I'm a me, at a meeting in France boy do I look at the hands because they're helping me understand an awful lot that that the, I can't get in the words but I think normally we do pick it up yes children pick it up children use gestures mm. before they speak I mean spatial thinking developed before language evolutionarily right. and within babies and animals think abstractly and they they're very clever and innovative and babies too and all of that is done without language it's a kind of spatial thinking which later we use language because it's convenient um, and for all kinds of reasons, I, I like language. In fact, I'm fond of quoting a friend of mine who said, um, words are my favorite visuals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're mine, but I like the expression. So babies are gesturing before they're speaking. Right. This is not work of mine, but of, of Susan Golden Meadow, who's done amazing work with her students and colleagues on gesture, that babies who gesture more speak sooner and right. more richly. So for babies, gesture is a form of communication. Nursery schools and daycare centers now teach, they call it baby sign, very simple gestures for I want more, I'm done, and so forth. The kids pick them up and the parents learn them from their kids. So they're more immediate. Hmm way of expressing and and more immediate both to produce and to understand. This isn't exactly gesture maybe, but I also found the research that you mentioned very interesting um, about the like them putting Velcro gloves on babies right. and when those babies reach for an object and it sticks to the Velcro glo glove, they sooner learn causality in terms of watching other people and understanding their intentions with respect to right. objects. It's beautiful work by Amanda Woodward. Yeah. It's just beautiful work. And, you know, babies are, can be clumsy. They're, and so their mind is actually developing before their, their bodies are adept at things. And this was a study showing if babies have trouble reaching and grab, grabbing things. They make failed attempts. And the patience, if you watch a baby <laughs> trying to do that, you think, you know, you would have given up. <laughs> right, right, right. Much long ago, but they have this enormous urge to learn that and, and patience to go through it over and over again till they get it right. And parents want to help, but let the kid, right? Yeah. So she helped kids grasp onto things, and then they learn the functions of these objects better. So it, it brings in... How do we understand other people's intentions? Mm. And we're understanding them way before they act. And we're understanding them partly the eyes lead, and then the shoulders and the hands. And we're knowing what somebody is looking at right. um, tells us a lot about what they're going to do. And then even the way they hold their hand. So um, a colleague of mine and her team, Christina Becchio in Genoa, did work showing that people know there's a, a bottle out there and you're either going to drink from it, pour it, or give it to somebody else. And before the hand reaches the bottle, you know hmm. what they're going to do. So to me, that's extraordinary that we're discerning other, yeah, yeah. other people's intentions so quickly. And of course, basketball players know this, and they fake you out. Right. 
So they right, do, right. right? And they work very hard at faking you. It's not just basketball. It's ma- magicians and, and uh, athletes in any team sport. You want to mislead the other team, but signal to your own team. And that is happening in nanoseconds. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the concept of mindfulness has entered popular culture from Buddhism and, and so on. But in reality, the, the fact is that there is, we are mindless of so much that we actually are, that our minds are aware of. There's so much we just simply don't see that's going on. And if we actually were paying better attention, some of which I'm sure comes more easily when you spend year after year in laboratories studying gesture <laughs> and so on. <laughs> we would we, we there's a lot more going on than we than we admit or recognize and Again, understand. it has to be automatic or yeah, yeah, yeah. we'd never be able to play basketball. Right, so. right, 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 right. And clearly it's a fun thing to do to do those really fast sports and sure. to do them well and to fake people out and and to play smoothly and I don't know. I mean, coaches will slow some of that down. They'll see things that ordinary people won't see. In fact, there's beautiful data on that, on Mm. coaches, and what coaches can see and what players can feel. So players are better watching videos of free shots. Players are better at predicting what will make the shot than coaches, right. but coaches are better than the rest of us. So the players have this added feeling of knowing how the body feels when they're watching somebody else's body, and the coaches won't have that. But coaches will see things that players won't see and can slow down some of that. But we, we couldn't so play basketball if we slowed everything down. You can't even walk. <laughs> right. Right? Think about walking. How do your arms go in relationship to your feet? And you can't walk. Yeah, in the case of the coaches and the players, you've got both are based on a kind of physical memory, as you talk about in the book. But in one case, the physical memory is entering through the eyes, and in the other, it's it's kinesthetic entering through the body, like the players have experience of those motions. Yeah, I mean, they're both watching videotapes, but the players are what my husband used to say, free throw machines. Right, right, right. right. And they're like surgeons doing doing hip replacement. You know, there's it's an assembly line and they can do it. So it's more embedded in their body. And there is brain work showing that actions that you are an expert in, you arouse more the motor areas of the brain than actions that you're not an expert in. Mm -hmm. And both will arouse those motor areas. Just watching will arouse motor areas as if you're doing a miniature action planning in order to understand what you're seeing. Mm. But when you're an expert at that, in this case, form of ballet or capoeira, there's much more activity. You have much more fine-tuned motor representation that you can map somebody else's actions onto. Having this show from week to week and talking to people in different fields, there are often connections that emerge. I spoke recently with uh, Franz de Waal, the primatologist, and we were talking about other primates besides humans and thought um, and mind in, in animals other than humans, because right. we don't, we often forget that we are animals as well. Right. You know, you, you don't talk too much about the animal research, but there's definite overlap here in terms of our history of human exceptionalism and kind of wanting to think of ourselves and our minds as something utterly different because we're totally bedazzled by the products of our, you know, imagination and our words and the way that the kind of the ideas that we put in the world feed back to us. But your work and Franz de Waal's work and also I think of Antonio Damasio who who does work about emotion in, in, in the body, you know, seem to kind of reorient us and and remind us that so much of the mind exists before all of this fancy stuff that makes right. humans human. We evolved <laughs> like everything else. And again, gesture and that kind of embodied communication mm. develop, evolved before and spatial think evolved before language. And you can find rudiments of language and communication in animals. So uh, uh, Duvall's work is mostly on emotion, or that recent book is mostly on emotion, and that 
we're really mirroring other people's emotions and right. through their expression in their faces and their bodies both contribute somebody's slumping versus somebody's upright and and right. energetic we pick up their mood state from that so it's faces and bodies picking this up we're automatically uh, it's in our brain of of translating what we're seeing into feelings through our own way of expressing. And if we go to animals away, so that emotional system is certainly in us as well as other animals. It accounts for how we respond to other animals. And of course, dogs are the most interesting case because they co-evolved with us. Sure. And empathy and things like that are certainly around there and, and emotional interaction. It's a whole nother topic that I'll... I'll And if I may, if I may, like, I mean, emotion seems to exist in simple forms in simpler organisms, but the kind of like pro-social emotion we're talking about with chimpanzees and humans, that's, that's a fairly complex evolved thing, but there's a direct line to feeling and sensation and motion in the world. Exactly. And, And when you say direct line, For years, people studied other primates to study aggression and alpha males and so forth. I mean, and Mike Tomasello and Franz Duval, but especially Mike Tomasello, who's run a primate lab, a comparative lab, looking at primates and looking at at human babies and looking. He's been studying cooperation and communication. And then you find the rudiments of cooperation and communication, both in animals and in in small children. And the differences are interesting. So Tomasello will find that that primates will cooperate until someone takes the larger share. <laughs> and then you're out. No more co- And children are a little more tolerant of that. Children don't want to get more than their own share. If they get more than their own share, they're going to give it So that's deeply in us. And, of course, there's the aggression, too. This idea that we're one thing, no way. We're always in tension and conflict. There's cooperation and and competition. They're all there in us. I wanted to go back to primates and bodies. So we learn a lot from our parents, from our teachers. They teach us how to do things. And different Groups of people do things differently. Something similar happens with chimps, with great apes. They learn there's culture that's transmitted, and different tribes have different cultures. So how do you open nuts? And some tribes will open them one way, and some will open them another way. And if you bring someone from the other tribe, from tribe A into tribe B, tribe B will pick it up. Mm. But they don't teach. Right. Or at least nobody's seen them teaching not yet. Not explicitly. They right. teach by example, but not, right. Exa- not intentional. And, right. So, <clears throat> again, you see a kind of continuity where that kind of imitative learning happens and you have cultural right. transmission, but there doesn't seem to be active teaching. And then you go into humans and we have active teaching. So, But it's all building, as you say, on those foundations. But a straight line not because dogs are different from from primates in terms of how they interact with humans. And even things like aggression. There are monkey groups that if a monkey baby is orphaned, they'll take the orphan in. There are other monkey groups that will shun the orphan. Right, right. So I think... Well, I I, I guess, yeah, yeah, I, I hope I wasn't suggesting that we're, that all species are the same thing. I, I guess what I was trying to say was that the way that you're anchoring abstract thought in right. motion and space, that like these deep roots of navigating space, taking in sensation from our environments, that mind emerges from that to a great extent before you even get to the human. It's not you. It's that there is this popular view that evolution sort of funneled into human beings. <laughs> right. Right. And there's an enormous amount of diversity of intelligence mm. and ways of solving problems, emotion, 
that isn't kind of funneled up to people. I mean, it was something that that Stephen Jay Gould really resisted, that right. image. So, no, I, I know I, that you I, understand. I, I, I wonder whether, you know, I mean, that, that, that to me, that thinking, that flaw in logic seems like another of those logic traps that the brain gets right. into like we want we want a narrative sequence right so right. humans are at the end of it so therefore everything neatly simplistically sorts into a right hierarchy right exactly <laughs> and I, I i'm so happy there's more attention to dolphins and whales and elephants and how they communicate elephants stamp their feet and 30 miles away i I'm not sure of the exact distance. I'm oversimplifying. Right, right. Some other elephant will pick up the message. So I think by focusing on this one line up to humans and we're the best and the, and the brightest, and the, <laughs> it, it really causes us to not pay attention to the many different ways that intelligence op- operates. And Jan LeCun, who's uh, one of the great AI researchers, is actually studying other animals. So if you're mm. going to do AI, people aren't the only intelligent creature around here. There are creatures that make all kinds of judgments and solve all kinds of problems better than we do. Navigation is one. Salmon do it better than we do, and turtles do it better. I'm pretty so, interested in cephalopods in that respect as yeah. well. They're, their brains evolving on a completely different right. evolutionary path from ours right. to something quite sophisticated. And dolphins <laughs> especially are, are yeah. really social creatures. Mm. So, you know, if you go back to Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, what made us beat the tigers? They can outrun us. Why aren't the tigers eating us? It's because we work. We can't run as fast. We aren't as strong as other animals. We work together. Mm. We're social creatures, right. Right. and dolphins are social creatures. So, this to me is going to be one of the really interesting. It already is um, directions of research for the twenty first century. Is is really studying those social interactions. And again, there's lovely work on it. If we're sitting next to somebody performing a simple task like pressing buttons when a light comes on, and the person next to us has a different mapping, and we're not working together, but if they have a different mapping, it interferes with our performance. We can't help but be aware. So I I think those are hard things. Throws our rhythm off or whatever. Yeah. 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 And those are hard things to study, as you as you pointed out. These sorts of implicit processes that happen so quickly are hard to study. They aren't accessible to language. Right. We can't describe them, and or they're very difficult to express it. So we're finding more and more clever ways, and the brain work helps, of finding out just how much other people's minds are affecting us and other people's bodies. Especially where language isn't accessible, like in in looking at different processes in different animals, that's where Dewal was saying, like, clever experiments are, are really valuable, but also science needs to have a little more tolerance than it sometimes does for having a kind of strong intuition and theory about what what's going on in spite of the dolphin not being able to report its right, feelings. You right, know? <laughs> right. This is what bothers me about a lot of the computational work and a lot of these tiny little laboratory experiments that don't really represent behavior in the world is we need to look as science. And the, one of the joys of doing cognitive science is you get to look at people mm. and or animals, and you got to look at what they're doing and try to think about that. I mean, I think if you're in biology or physics, you're looking at phenomena too, and your intuitions are coming from there. And then you got to have a clever way of kind of demonstrating, are your intuitions right, fine-tuning them, sure. and so forth. But I think looking teaches you an awful lot. Yeah, looking, feeling, and all the ways that we feel. That's just a great place for us to move on. Let's go to the second part of the show. This is where we're going to, for the audience's benefit, I'm explaining. This is where we watch uh, surprise short video clips from Big Thinks Archives that are chosen by the producers. I have not watched them before. Barbara has not watched them before, but they're conversation starters for the for the rest of our talk. Okay, I'll, I'll be surprised. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> 
This should be fun because it is a philosopher, Alva Noah, talking about the puzzle yeah. of perception. Consider this. We are conscious of both more and less than affects our nervous system. Let me give you an example. I look at a tomato. It's sitting there in the counter in front of me. It's red and bulgy and three-dimensional, and I experience all that. I experience all that visually. I have a sense, even visually, of the back of the tomato. Not that I can see the back of the tomato, it's out of view, and yet it's part of my experience of the tomato that it has a back. It's present in that sense to me. But note, it doesn't strike my retina. It's present, it informs, it structures my visual experience without actually being an element that stimulates my nervous system. Or consider I look at writing on a text. Or a better example is I walk into a room and there's graffiti on the wall. And imagine it's graffiti that I find really offensive. I walk in, I look at it, my, my, I flush, my heart starts to race, I'm, I'm outraged, I'm taken aback. Of course, if I didn't know the language in which it was written, I could have had exactly the same retinal events and the same events in my, in my early visual system without any corresponding reaction. So, so it's an interesting puzzle. Much more shows up for us than just what projects into our nervous system. In fact, it, however paradoxical it sounds, if we think of what is visible as just what projects to the eyes, we see much more than is visible. And moreover, just because something does uh, enter our eyes, provide a stimulus to the nervous system, that doesn't mean we experience it. Psychologists have shown this in the laboratory with experiments in what have been called change blindness. You can be looking at something, and as you're looking at it, it's changing. And under quite normal conditions, uh, people will, to a surprisingly large degree, fail to be able to describe or notice that a change has occurred. It's a little bit like if I have a plate of french fries and you say to me, hey, what's that over there behind your shoulder? And I go like this, and you take one of my fries, and when I turn around, I probably won't notice that anything is missing. I, don't, I didn't have that kind of a detailed internal representation of the plate such that I could compare how the plate looked before I turned away and how it looked when I turned back and noticed a discrepancy. But that's how our experience is in general. We find ourselves in place in an environment. The world is there and we don't need a detailed internal representation because we can move our heads, flick our eyes, redirect our interest, and get the information we need as we need it. Our ability to experience more than is in some sense there, and also less than is in some sense there, I think, in a very strong way, point us to the fact that what shows up for us is not so much a matter of what is happening inside of us, but how we are achieving or failing to achieve access to what's going on around us. He expressed it in a very engaging way, mm. pointing out that we both subtract information from what we see and add information. And again, it's he gave some of the reasons. Right. The change blindness effect doesn't just work on a single French fry. You can show in rapid alternation, one of the photos is a jet plane where troops are alighting into the plane. And in one... It's two frames. In one, the engine is gone Right. from the airplane, and the other, the engine is there. You don't notice the engine is missing. You get a feeling something's missing, right. but you don't notice that. And so even important features like an engine, a single French fry, no, no sweat, but even important features like an engine get missing. And I think his reason is right, that we can always reference the world. Mm. And why take it all in? Right. I mean, that I said a little bit earlier, that keeping everything that we see as if it were a video in our heads is useless. Sure. We really need the abstractions, because whatever memory we're having is in the service of the future. Huh. It's what do we need to do in the, and, and right. perception too. So if I'm seeing a scene, I don't, I, schematically, I know right away it's a street scene, a kitchen, 
I know where I am. Mm. I might, I'd know if I was in Paris or in New York. I'd know what neighborhood I was in. I'd know those things quickly, and then I would know how to guide my behavior in those scenes. Sure. But it, it, there's no need to remember the static scene. When things move, I want to take account of them because are they coming at me? Are they going away from me? Are they things I need? So then I'm when things move in a fluent way, not in this change blindness right, way. Right, right. Or, or if you like absolutely need to know for whatever the task is that right. you're trying to, trying to do. Then, then I'm like, going to pay attention. Like if you're shooting at you know, enemy planes or something, you probably need sure. to know when an enemy plane has appeared even in a sky full of... Of enemy planes and I'm not gonna see a lot else yeah, yeah I'm yeah. gonna be focusing on that I mean basketball players will be similar so and going back to just recognizing objects that were adding information sure. there, the mind is after meaning mm-hmm. and we ultimately need to assign a meaning to everything and that will get into emotion which again we've talked about a little bit there but it, the meaning, is it friend or foe? Is it my parent or a stranger? Is it somebody I've been eager to meet and want to? Is it a chair I can sit on because I'm so tired, <laughs> right? right? Is it a place where I can get a soda? It's warm outside. Um, so for- that, brings up, that brings up something very interesting, I think, which is that, you know, like the way that art works mm. um, when it's good is that it sort of subverts all of those attempts that the mind is making at all times, not not necessarily to make meaning, but to find the use value of things. Like your mind tries to wrap itself around the thing and the thing problematizes all, all of the, it won't allow itself to be made use of necessarily. I mean, a great piece of literature, a poem. Music, which is kind of stream mainlining emotion, and music transports us, and art transports us. And art is especially interesting. I was having a conversation with a graduate student working with me on art yesterday, and she's been looking at people's responses to representation on abstract art. Abstract art people have trouble with. And I, I think it's exactly what you pointed to. When I'm looking at a representational pa- painting, I can see those are people. It's a scene. It's um, from ancient history. It's from China. I can do a lot of my brain is already primed to recognize right. those things, and I can make sense of them. I'm still getting emotional responses and, and so on and so forth for it. But when I go to abstract art, my brain automatically puts tries those processes. It doesn't work. Right. And so sometimes you look at a Rothko for a long time, and I recommend that, figures emerge. Mm-hmm. And so that you can see, rep- and that's some of the fun of it. It gets three-dimensional figures emerge. Sort of you like see when you ab- look at the clouds, you know, and... Right, 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 exactly. Right. We all, especially as children, spend a lot of time finding, and our brain can't help but do it. And puzzling that out is a fun thing for the brain to do. So for me, and this is in the book a little bit, both for innovation, how I'm going to create something new, and art, the ambiguity is crucial. That right. I, so I can keep reinterpreting it. I look at it again, and I see new things, and I see new relationships, and I make new inferences from it when it has some ambiguity. Now, anything is going to be open right. to ambiguity, but I think great art is especially open to that. You know, what is the Mona Lisa's face saying? Well, and I think, and I, I guess what I want to, what I also want to keep, like, what I want to tease out further is to say that, unlike science, it's not a, a puzzle always, you know, it's not, you're not necessarily looking for the answer to the Mona Lisa, you know, like, right? You, <laughs> right? I right. mean, like, part of, part of the point, I mean, that, that can be part of the pleasure is that discovery of, like, layers of meaning in the thing. But in the end, much of the art that I, I would think of as great allows multiple things to coexist and that's the experience that's the strange sort of cognition defying experience in a way of art (laughs) Uh, right and i know i'm that's certainly one of the i'm a big art fan so 
It's one of the reasons I moved to New York. Mm. Know, it, was, it was just the art, art world, and it's terribly exciting to me. And, you know, everything goes through the human mind, so it becomes fodder for a cognitive scientist, is how do we create art and how do we appreciate it? And holding contradictory things, I mean, mm. Picasso, Cezanne, it all did that with showing contradictory. And, of course, our mind does it, too. You know, sure. we can love and hate someone at the same time or, or be annoyed by someone and adore them at the same time. We can have conflicting views. Right. And th- those contradictions are things we need to recognize. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that I was just thinking about, and this is a strange analogy, but, you know, the same way that like alcohol, for example, or drugs, you know, can disinhibit people, that people use these things to disinhibit their ordinary cognitive processes that enable them to navigate the world in a sensible, logical, rational way. In a way, art is is doing something similar by subverting the kind of simple, error-prone categorization that we, that we, we tend to want to line everything up into. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the first time I've heard alcohol and art <laughs> being grouped together. But sure, there are kind of disinhibition, and there's no right way to appreciate art or music. And so you're free to just take it in and enjoy it. I'm, I'm thinking of Dionysus. Yeah. He, he, uh, he paired okay. them be up. Okay, be merry. Be merry. Pa- right. Alcohol and dance. And yeah, so at right. least there we have that, that pairing. <laughs> right. And and some of us have been perhaps overtrained and not making mm-hmm. gestures, not using our body, <laughs> not expressing emotion. And we do need a little help unwinding um, <laughs> and, and letting that go. So, sure, and art can put us in an altered state. Yeah. Theater, certainly, literature, certainly, mm-hmm. terribly, and music, all of it can really absorb us, transport us, and put us in an altered state. Right. I remember years ago, we're going out of a Renoir exhibit, and I'm not a huge fan of Renoir. No, it was a Monet exhibit, and I, I'm a bigger fan of Monet. Right. And it, it, taking the bus back to Providence with one of my kids, it was fall, and just seeing the world differently. Hmm. That immersion in impressionist scenes made me just see the world differently, and it was a delight. You're riding a bus, it's not exactly elegant, but it was just, again, transporting to see the world differently because of that art. So again, you know, going back to your that that law of cognition which is that every every benefit has a cost, like we simplify right. the world and and in doing so we lose a lot of nuance. We sometimes need to subvert that. Right. And and as you said when we're when we're enjoying art, we don't have to worry about accomplishing a task. So we're freed from that idea of I I have to get to work on time. (laughs) These people are in my way. What are all these (laughs) tourists doing here anyway? (laughs) (laughs) It's nine in the morning on a Sunday. (laughs) What's going on? So it it, it frees us from, it's a moment where we can just free ourselves Mm. from all those tasks and learn to see again or hear again and and we do learn. I think it's, again, something not pointed out by many people, but a lot of learning is book learning. And so I have to learn how a car brake works, or maybe I do, or how a heart works. And then it's kind of book learning, and it might be a combination of visuals and verbals. But we do a lot of learning by watching patterns. Mm. So you see patterns in cities. That's why people can recognize Paris, people who've been there, and know that it's not London. Just from little snippets of buildings, you've got the pattern. You know what the buildings look like. You know what Impressionist art looks like. You Mm. know what Baroque music is. So that just listening, seeing, you're, you're doing a lot of learning, but it isn't explicit verbal learning. Same thing happens when you're playing sports. Your body is learning. Right. And it's, again, not, it can be guided with a coach, but you're basically just adjusting your body and your body's doing the learning and let your body learn Hmm. and let your eyes learn. Just sit back, let them learn. Don't make it deliberate. I guess it's easy to get out of the habit of thinking this, but humans are learning creatures and we can be and probably are at our best if we are from cradle to grave. Yeah. 
Learning is interesting, keeps our minds alive, <laughs> yeah. and movement does. There's all this work done on, now on how you can preserve an aging mind, which I'm attentive to at the moment. <laughs> and and you know, crossword puzzles, brain training, none of that works as well as moving mm. in the world. Mm. And so moving in the world moves your mind, and that connection is exciting. Just keep moving. Uh, it's a good excuse for something that people often have more time later in life to do, which is traveling around the world. But you want to use your legs, <laughs> not sitting in an airplane. You okay, want to use your legs, walk around Rome, take in those gorgeous buildings and stop for gelato. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, and but duck out of the way of the Vespas that are trying to run you down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the interest of our ongoing learning and cognitive well-being, I think, Barbara, you and I should keep moving now out into the world. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you for a lovely conversation and, and your great book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. We are just two episodes away from our 200th show, four years of producing the podcast. Thank you so much for sticking with us on this journey. Those of you who have been here for a long time and welcome to any newcomers. If you're liking or thinking about what you hear, please feel free to connect with me at jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. You can write me an email there or join my mailing list. And I'll be back next week with something completely different. I hope you can join me.